Hello, murder fam, and welcome back to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we also veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. This podcast will be on John List. John List was born on September 17, 1925 in Bay City, Michigan. So let's get into some history for that time. In the United States, the first motel was opened. It was located about halfway between San Francisco and Los Angeles, California. The term motel is a shortened version of motorists hotel, and it described a hotel where the visitors could park right outside their door. It was a very early part of the car culture that would very soon take over the American way of life. The Great Gatsby was published this year, written by F. Scott Fitzgerald. The first Sears Roebuck department retail store was opened in Chicago. It had had a catalog for almost 40 years before the store opened. Also this year, the Grand Old Opry began broadcasting. So this was the atmosphere that John was born into. His parents were John List and Alma Florence. So John Sr. was born in 1864 to parents who had immigrated to Michigan from Germany. He grew up very religious and was devoutly Lutheran. He had also been a Sunday school teacher. And when he was 22 years old, he married a girl named Anna, and together they had two children, Frederick and Marie. They were married for 37 years when, at the age of 58, Anna died. Then, a year later, their daughter Marie, who was then 29, married and had a daughter of her own, also died. I couldn't find out what she died from, only that she had died a year after her mother. Now, a year after his wife's death, John Sr. married Alma Florence. He was 59, she was 37. She had also been previously married, but it had not produced any children, and her husband had died. One year later, the couple had John. So keep in mind that John had never met his older sister who had died and his older brother was long grown, married, and had begun to have children of his own. Our John would be the only child of Alma's and the last child to be born to John Sr. So he was raised an only child. It is said that John's parents were quite strict and again, devoutly religious. Reportedly, his mother was particularly protective and domineering. His father was a hard-working man who greatly valued the idea of self-sufficiency. He was taught his entire childhood that it was imperative that he be a, quote, good Christian. Any deviance from absolute obedience was met with corporal or physical punishment. And church was not something you just went to on Sundays. It was an integral part of their lives. His mother, when he was a younger child, would not let John play with other children because, quote, she didn't want him to get dirty, unquote. 
He was taught to be meticulous about his appearance, to be seen and not heard. But when he was specifically asked about his childhood later, he stated that he had a normal childhood, that he grew up without incident other than his stringently religious upbringing. But he adopted and absorbed his parents' love of their faith and religion. And that's all I could find out about his childhood. Now, when you research children who were born to older parents, most of what you will find is that the children tend to be better behaved. These children often have easier childhoods because their parents are usually already established in their careers and are more financially stable. The parents also tend to have more patience, are less likely to notice or care about some very minor behavioral concerns that younger parents might report. But that might not apply to John as his parents were very, very strict and swift with discipline. If you dive in a little deeper, you find that children born to older mothers have a markedly higher percentage of genetic mutations. According to Healthline.com, researchers have also linked the age of a child's father at birth to an increase in neurological and behavioral conditions such as autism and ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and an even greater risk of developing bipolar disorder or even psychosis. I didn't see anything that pointed toward any of these conditions with regards to John though. It's not to say that they might not have been there, I just didn't find any evidence of it. The overly religious upbringing isn't necessarily out of the norm either because to this day, many parents insist their children go to church, mass, synagogue, etc. every single Sabbath day, whatever any religion calls it, without fail. They have to go. They say prayers before meals and they intertwine their lives and their religion seamlessly. It can, however, go terribly wrong. I mean, let's look at Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell, right? So what really stands out about his childhood is that his mother was so controlling and overprotective that she didn't really allow him to play with other children for fear of him getting dirty. I'm sure this was part of it and perhaps his mother had some issues with anxiety. I feel truly that she did. But I also feel that it could have been that she just didn't want any other children to quote, corrupt her precious son. Now, does this sound familiar, guys? Because it should. This sounds a lot like Ed Gein's mother, who isolated her sons to keep them from being influenced or morally corrupted by anyone. Now, this lack of social interaction in childhood, according to the U.S. National Library of Medicine, National Institutes of Health, greatly increases the risk for negative outcomes. These include socio-emotional difficulties like anxiety, low self-esteem, depressive symptoms. It can cause issues when it comes to peer rejection, victimization, or poor friendship quality, difficulties in school, and the child will physically isolate and likely be much more introverted. And guys, in our current climate, 
with COVID and schools not opening and everything, whatever side of the fence you stand on, we all need to be quite aware of the fact that our children are being socially isolated. So there's that. Now, with introversion, it's something that John definitely lived with. Everyone that knew him spoke about how quiet, unassuming, and introverted he was. A study out of Berkeley stated that overprotective parenting can lead to risk aversion, meaning won't take any risk, even if it's good. Um, It also shows that they will develop a dependency on their parents. They have a higher risk of psychological disorders, a lack of strong coping mechanisms, and chronic anxiety. Quote, a child that is not allowed to take risks or make his or her own choices is bound to face a lot of anxiety and trouble when having to face the harsh realities of a chaotic world. Interestingly, though, the effects of overprotectiveness share uncanny similarities to those of neglect, albeit to a lesser degree. All in all, children become less equipped to deal with the stressors of the world as adults, and we see that in the data, unquote. But again, guys, John was later interviewed and stated his childhood was normal, other than the overly religious aspect. I think that the possessive and isolating mother and really both of his parents played a significant part in his later crimes. But let's continue. Once he graduated from high school, he enlisted in the U.S. Army. He was an infantryman and worked as a lab technician during World War II. There didn't seem to be any issues with him during that time and he was discharged in 1946. His father had died two years prior to his discharge. But he then went straight on to college. He enrolled at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Again, there were no reports of any issues while in college. He graduated with a four-year bachelor's degree in business administration and had also managed to fit in a master's in accounting, which is no small feat. And he was commissioned a second lieutenant through ROTC, which is the Reserves Officers Training Corps. Now in late 1950, when he was 25 years old, he was recalled to active duty because of the Korean War and it was escalating beyond, you know, what anyone had expected. While at Fort Eustace, Virginia, he met a young lady by the name of Helen Taylor. Helen had recently become a widow, thanks to the Korean War, and she was now a single parent to her daughter, Brenda, who was around eight years old at the time. She had also had a son with her deceased husband, but that baby had died at only two months old. So John and Helen began dating, and supposedly she told him she was pregnant rather quickly. Even though he sort of advertised himself as this devoutly religious man, meaning no sex before marriage, he knew that he had to marry Helen quickly. But he also found out nearly as quickly after the marriage that she was not pregnant after all. But he accepted it and the couple, along with her daughter, moved to North Carolina where he worked as an accountant for the army. 
After completing his second tour in the Korean War in 1952 and thus finishing his military career, John moved his family yet again to Detroit, Michigan. While there, he worked for an accounting firm and the couple began having children of their own. Patricia was born in 1955. Then they moved to Kalamazoo, Michigan, where John III was born in 1956. It was at this point that John took a job as an audit supervisor. And then their final child, Frederick, was born in 1958. Helen's daughter was, at this point, 16 years old. With a larger family came more expenses, and John was feeling the financial strain. His employer said he was quite detail-oriented and hard-working. Co-workers agreed, but also said he was, quote, just plain weird, unquote. They described him as off-putting and difficult at times. He was terribly quiet. He kept to himself. Again, very introverted, but kind, not rude. And John's marriage was a good one, but he found out that Helen was an alcoholic rather quickly and her behavior was becoming more and more unpredictable. Sources also say that she had, and this is kind of scandalous, contracted tertiary syphilis from her cheating husband before he died. Now tertiary syphilis is just a term used to describe the roughly 15 to 30 percent of people who contract syphilis and do not get treatment. And tertiary is just how they refer to the late stage of the disease. In this stage, syphilis can damage the eyes, heart, blood vessels, liver, bones and joints, and even the brain and nervous system. Now, I don't know if she suffered with both alcoholism and syphilis, you know, both of them at the same time or what, but that was the information that I found. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now, in 1960, Brenda got married and moved out of the house, so she was grown, gone, doing her own thing. John took this opportunity to take his wife and his three children, and he moved to the East Coast while taking a job as the director of accounting at Xerox in New York. Five years later, he got a job as the vice president of a bank in Jersey City, New Jersey. John was making really, really good money at this point. John purchased a 19-room Victorian mansion referred to as Breeze Knoll. This mansion was beautiful and even included a signed Tiffany stained glass skylight over a very fancy ballroom. Outwardly, it would appear that this was the high point in John's life. 
He even brought his now quite elderly mother to the house to live with them and her quarters were on the third floor. He also became a Sunday school teacher at the church that they had joined. And yet, not all was what it seemed. John lost his job as the vice president of the bank. It wasn't due to his job performance or anything like that. It was his personality. People just did not like him. He came across as cold and had no real social skills. He was a very rigid person in his routines and his rituals, and he was unwavering about his processes, and people could not tolerate working with him. And this wasn't the first time. It would appear that he had lost several jobs due to these issues, actually. Coupled with that, his wife's symptoms were getting worse, and she was self-medicating with more alcohol and then introduced prescription tranquilizers because now she was experiencing blackouts. This forced her to stop going to church, which, guys, was a very bad deal. John looked at this as a, quote, moral decline, unquote. He was also carefully watching his children who were becoming teenagers in the late 1960s. You know, that favorite time during the free love and the hippie movements, right? Patricia even told her father that she wanted to become an actress, which was completely unacceptable to him. Some sources even hinted that she had tried smoking pot a couple of times. Ooh. His boys were growing into young men with young man thoughts and desires. He felt his whole family was becoming morally corrupt. He was able to find another job, but it didn't pay near as well, and he knew he was not going to be able to pay all of his bills. He quickly lost that job as well. He began taking money out of his mother's bank account to supplement his own to try to at least keep up with the mortgage on his mansion. And instead of just telling his family what was going on, or I don't know, living within his means, he kept it a secret. He continued to get up in the morning, following his very precise routine, then leaving to, quote, go to work, and then sitting at the train station all day, reading the newspaper, reading books, waiting out the hours before he got on a train to go home. He later stated, quote, I grew up with the idea that you should provide for your family and to do what you had to to be successful in the job that you had, or you're a failure and that was not a good thing to be, unquote. Needless to say, he was bankrupt. On November 9th, 1971, John awoke, as he always did, to put on the show of going to an imaginary job. He woke his children, he got them ready for school, and he sent them off. He then calmly grabbed his gun, walked up to 46-year-old Helen, who was having her morning coffee, and shot her in the back of the head. He placed her body on a sleeping bag and dragged it into the ballroom just underneath that fancy Tiffany skylight. 
He then walked upstairs to the third floor apartment where his 84-year-old mother was eating her breakfast and shot her above her left eye. He decided Alma was just going to be too difficult to move, so he left her where she had fallen. He did, though, put a dish towel over her face. Then John decided to drive over to the post office and have the mail deliveries stopped completely. He canceled the newspaper delivery. He closed both the family's and his mother's bank accounts. Once he returned home, he called the children's schools to let them know that they would be, quote, out for a time due to a family member's failing health. He went into the kitchen. He cleaned up his wife's blood and began making himself some lunch. When he was done eating, he washed the dishes and calmly waited for his children to get home from school. 16-year-old Patricia was the first to get home. She was shot in the back of the head, placed on a sleeping bag, and dragged into the ballroom near her mother. 13-year-old Frederick was next and met the same fate. The middle child and his favorite son, 15-year-old John III, had stayed back at school because he had had a soccer game that afternoon. So his father drove to the school, watched his game, cheered him on, then drove his son home. Once in the house, John pulled out the gun and attempted to shoot his son. Sources say there was a misfire, indicating that his son had put up a fight to save his own life. He was shot ten times, placed on a sleeping bag, and drug into the ballroom with the rest of them, his face also covered. And then John decided he was hungry, so he made himself some dinner. After he cleaned up a bit, and again did the dishes, and then went to bed. He slept while his murdered family laid slain on the floor in the ballroom and his mother directly above him. The next morning, John took the time to write a five-page letter to the family's pastor explaining why he had done this. He stated that this was to save their immortal souls from the evil modern times as he was very concerned about their salvation. APnews.com posted excerpts from the letter. I don't have the whole letter, but here are some excerpts. Now, List began the five-page letter by telling the Reverend Eugene Rewinkle, quote, I am very sorry to add this additional burden to your work. After it was all over, I said some prayers for them all from the hymn book. That was the least that I could do. I leave myself in the hands of God's justice and mercy. God could have helped them in my time of distress, but apparently he saw fit not to answer my prayers. This makes me think that perhaps it was for the best, as far as the children's souls are concerned, because of Christ dying even for me. I know that many will only look at the additional years that they could have lived but if finally they were no longer Christians, what would be gained? Also, I'm sure many will say, how could anyone do such a horrible thing? 
My only answer is, it isn't easy and was only done after much thought. I shot them in the back of the head because I didn't want any of them to know, even at the last second, that I had to do this to them. John got hurt more because he seemed to struggle longer. Unquote. So just let that absorb, right? So John wrote that he wasn't earning enough money to support his family and was basically bankrupt. He admitted in the letter that they could have filed for bankruptcy and went on welfare and his kids could have gotten after school jobs to help, but he, quote, feared the effects of poverty on my children, unquote. He mentioned Patricia wanting to be an actress and his worry that she would not be a Christian. He said he was angry that his wife had stopped going to church. He asked that things in the house be donated, such as books to the local library. He listed his wishes for funeral arrangements, mentioned his mother was upstairs, and just signed it, John. He then went through the family photo albums and took all of the pictures of himself out of each of them. He turned the radio station to a religious one and then put the music over the intercom system in the house. He turned the air conditioner down all the way to keep the house cold, like a meat locker, if you will, and then he left. A month later, the neighbors had begun to realize that they had not seen any movement around John's house, that the lights had been left on continuously and the bulbs were beginning to burn out one by one. Someone called the police. On the outside, the house looked pristine, nothing out of sorts whatsoever. They gained entry into the house through an unlocked window, leading down into the basement, and they eventually found the bodies. After the letter was found, they launched a manhunt looking for John. Leads were called in from all over, and yet they could not find him. They did find the family's car at John F. Kennedy Airport in New York City, but there was no evidence that John got onto a flight. No photographs of him were used to spread because they didn't really have any. Remember, he took them. Alma's body was flown back to Michigan, and the rest of the family was buried locally. And then the trail went cold. Nine months later, the mansion was set on fire by somebody, destroying it almost completely. It was determined that that Tiffany skylight was worth so much money that that alone would have gotten John completely out of his debts. It was worth $610,000 in today's money. A new house was built over the site in 1974. So where did he go, right? What John had done was hopped on a train and went from New Jersey to Michigan, then on to Colorado. He settled in Denver, created a whole new person named Robert Peter Clark. He went by Bob and, you know, he took a new accounting job. He joined a Lutheran church, ran a carpool for other church members who could not drive themselves and even met a woman named Dolores Miller. They were married in 1985. John was now 60 years old. In 1988, they moved to Midlothian, Virginia, and they just continued on with their lives. 
But then in 1986, his case was aired on America's Most Wanted. An expert had created a bust sculpture of what John would look like at the current age he was, and it was shockingly nearly identical to how he actually looked, and those tips came pouring in. Less than two weeks after the broadcast, he was arrested at his job. He swore that his name was Bob Clark and maintained that for weeks, but eventually relented in February of 1990. So guys, 18 years, John had lived a whole new life, and everyone that had known him as Bob were in complete shock. During his trial, he listed all of the same reasons for his actions as he did in his letter. A psychiatrist diagnosed him with Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, OCD. He was sentenced to five life sentences to be served back to back. He attempted to appeal, but they were all denied. When asked why he did not kill himself, he stated that it is a mortal sin to kill yourself and he did want to be reunited with his family in heaven. John List died from pneumonia in 2008. He was 83 years old. Thanks for listening. <laughs>